Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Dr. William Albert, or Bill as he prefers to be called. Bill is the SVP Global Head of UX and Customer Development at Mark 49, a growth incubator and accelerator for global 1,000 businesses that has over $50 in market cap and counting. Prior to joining Mark 49, Bill was an adjunct professor in human factors at Bentley University and the executive director of the Bentley University User Experience Centre for nearly 14 years. At the User Experience Centre, Bill and his team partnered with over 100 global companies to help drive innovation and develop competitive advantage through UX research, design and strategy. With over 20 years of experience in UX, working across industry, academia, and consulting, Bill brings a unique and particularly quantifiable perspective to the field. Along with his good friend, the late Dr. Tom S. Tullis, Bill is the co-author of two books, Measuring the User Experience, Collecting, Analyzing, and Presenting Usability Metrics, and Beyond the Usability Lab, conducting large-scale online user experience studies. Can you tell that he thinks measuring UX is important? More on that soon. Since 2013, Bill has been the co-editor and chief of the Journal of User Experience, a peer-reviewed international online publication associated with the User Experience Professionals Association that's dedicated to promoting and enhancing the practice of research and education into UX design and evaluation. Bill's own research papers have been published in other leading academic journals, such as the Journal of Information Design and the International Journal of Human-Computer Interaction. And he has spoken at over 50 national and international conferences. And now he's here with me for a conversation on Brave UX. Bill, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really great to have you, Bill. And as I mentioned, I did enjoy watching your talks. You're someone who has a particularly, as I mentioned in your intro, quantifiable lens to the field. And you're also someone with a very strong academic background who's been very closely connected to educating the next generation of UX leaders and also the provision of consulting services through your work at Bentley. Now, you're also the, as I mentioned, the co editor and chief of the Journal of User Experience, and you've done that for nearly a decade on top of all the other things that you've done. Why have you dedicated so much time and energy to this? Uh, it's a great question. I, I think what, going back decades, when I first started out, I always felt like I needed to have a foot in both academia and industry. I never felt 100% comfortable being completely in one camp. I, I've been very motivated academically. I'm trained as a researcher. That's how my brain works. I'm constantly asking questions, trying to figure out how to answer those questions and to try to disseminate that research in the hopes that somebody finds it useful. But at the same time, I've always wanted to make sure that my work has, has value and I have my feet on the ground and I love the energy of working in industry. So I, I guess I just, I never, I, I always wanted to be in both. And, and my position at Bentley kind of afforded me that opportunity. What I'm doing right now with Mach 49 does as well. And the journal was a big part of that to help really establish the UX field to give it more rigor. When I first started getting into UX in really the very late 90s, I just found it to be, it just, it didn't have the scientific rigor that I was thinking of um, or expecting and have wanted to kind of push it however I could. And, and the journal was a great kind of vehicle for that. So given your near decade experience, as the editor of the journal and, and the fact that you're also a, a published academic yourself, what questions have you observed the field 
asking itself over time and how have they changed, if any? Has there been any sort of observable trend since you first started in that position uh, to where we're at as a field now with those types of questions that we're wrestling with? Hmm. I think what's, at least what we're, we're seeing in the journal, oh, and by the, by the way, before I answer your question, just a heads up for, for those listeners, only very recently, only since last month have we been the Journal of User Experience. Before that, Journal of Usability Studies or JUICE since the founding in the early 2000s before I, I became co-editor. So same journal, just a very recent name change. And and that sort of takes me to the trend I'm seeing, and especially the journal and the submissions that we're getting are much broader, more holistic, more in line with user experience or how we think of user experience as opposed to Early on, really about the mechanics of of doing usability testing and, and the metrics associated with usability testing, which is very important and very useful at the time to kind of get our field or our practice going. But it was never, I never th- saw it as kind of like, that's all we do is usability testing. Even, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, we were talking about user experience and trying to think about it more broadly. And I think that the journals kind of has sort of tried to reflect that over time. But more recently, we're just seeing a a lot more innovative research um, coming our way. I know that in your own work, in particular to do with UX scorecards, you've gone beyond usability. And I would like to come to that soon. But I was also curious about the types of people as the field has grown, the types of people, if you've observed any difference in the types of people who have been submitting papers over that decade. Well, one obvious change has been where we get papers from. We are now getting papers from all over. I mean, just, you know, we're getting papers from Fiji and from Finland and from Kenya and from all over, especially Africa, um, which is so underrepresented, from South America, from every every corner. It's not just been U.S. and Western Europe-based. So um, that's been um, huge for us. And the type of people, I think, we're probably reaching a broader audience, or at least I hope we are, it really straddles this line between kind of academic and practitioner who's interested in research that's peer-reviewed. And that's really the difference between us is that it's it's going through an extensive review process. We only accept about a third of the p- papers, and we want to make sure it's it's really sound research and, and folks can kind of rely on it. The, the other interesting thing, too, is that it's kind of, a, kind of a, a, a funny kind of irony here, but with the Journal of Usability Studies, we don't publish usability studies, is that we want to make sure that, that we publish work that has um, kind of broader implications. So if somebody does a usability study about product X, if you're working on product X, that's great and you love it and maybe it's very relevant but everybody else probably doesn't care about it. So it has to have some kind of connection to kind of a broader theme issue, um, either from a methodological standpoint or from some other perspective that kind of generalizes to a larger population of, of, of readers. So, so we kind of stay away from usability studies per se, and we recommend people, if you're publishing or doing research on a particular product, you know, let's say it's in um, VR, then publish in a VR journal, right? Instead of instead of ours. So, you mentioned it was calibrated towards academics, but also practitioners who were up for having their their work peer reviewed. Are there any minimum sort of academic qualifications or or other uh, industry based qualifications or experience levels that are required in order to submit a paper to the journal? Um, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, anyone is welcome to to submit it, but we do have a, a pretty formal set of, of submission guidelines that we ask all the authors to follow. So what we don't want is somebody just to take, you know, uh, a 10-page paper from their 
undergrad time and just throw the logo on and submit it. It's got to follow a certain standard, just like any submission to, to any other journal you, you would in terms of APA style. The, the, interestingly, the only requirement, I believe the only requirement of a section we have is called tips for practitioners, because sometimes we, w- we want to make sure it's going to connect to the practitioner as well, right? And so they have, to, whoever it is, has to be able to kind of figure out, okay, this is great, but what does this really mean for that practitioner? So so that's a really important aspect. But no, anyone's uh, more than welcome to submit. Usually the turnaround time is a couple months, um, which is pretty standard for, for journals. Well, if you're listening, people, then get get your thoughts together and submit a paper to the journal. It would be good to see more of you publishing your work or attempting to get your work published through the journal. I'm sure that they would appreciate the submissions. Bill, you're someone, and you mentioned this earlier, who clearly believes in introducing or upholding certain standards and rigor in, in UX research. And you can see this through the pub the papers you've published, the books you've written, you know, your body of work, you know, your 20 years in this field. In your experience of the field and from your observations of peers and and others in this in this wonderful field of ours, is there a, a need currently for more rigor in UX research? First off, I think that we've come a long way. So when Tom Tullis and I first came up with this idea for a book about metrics it was almost like people would look at you with this quizzical look why what do we mean ux how can you measure that it's very subjective and and, you know tom and i were really saw eye to eye you know what actually this is something that not only can be measured but it should be measured companies are making really big decisions and we just felt like simply relying on some kind of either purely qualitative insights or anecdotal evidence just wasn't enough. Companies were demanding more. And that sort of precipitated this idea around around measurement. But to answer your question, I think that things have, have really moved in, in toward that measurement direction, for sure. There, there's multiple books on the topic now. Um, I hear more and more companies asking for it. It's it's not a nice to have. Companies are demanding it, putting budget toward it. So there's always more that can be done around it. I I believe. Um, and and I just want to give a caveat for a second. As 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 kind of quant as I I sort of my brain works. I really value qualitative UX research. I do more qualitative than I do quantitative. I think really the power is in mixed methods approach, bringing in both qual and quant. That is where quant can only do so much, right? I, I can measure stuff, but if I don't know why, I'm at a disadvantage. And and I need both qual and quant together. So that's sort of my focus, I guess. Someone who echoed those exact sentiments, who you may you may know is um, Dr. Sam Ladner, who I had on the show uh, a few months ago, probably earlier in the year, actually. Oh, gosh, this year's going so quickly, and she's very much uh, she's written a book on it. In fact, behind this um, this idea that it's the mixed methods and those integ- that integration of those perspectives that mm-hmm. actually en- enables us to calibrate uh, a more effective view of what might actually be going on and make better decisions. So, hundred percent agree with that. I just want to come yeah. to someone who you mentioned and who I mentioned in your introduction, who's been someone I understand has been quite instrumental in your career and was a very dear friend of yours. And, and that's the, the late Tom S. Tullis. Who was Tom and what impact did he have on your life? Yeah. So, I mean, Tom started off, he did his PhD in basically human factors. I think it was engineering psychology at at Rice University, went on to do um, a postdoc at Bell Labs and was always kind of a, like myself, kind of half academic, half practitioner. And I think that was sort of the the reason why we, we connected. We actually first met, I remember this very clearly, we first met at a conference, a Kai 
conference in The Hague in, I think, 2000, around that time. Right, right, I think it was in the year 2000, 2001. And I saw him give a talk, and I was just blown away because he had this ability to explain difficult concepts really simply. And so I went up and I talked to him. And we exchanged information. He was um, working at Fidelity Investments, where he worked for more than 25 years in Boston. And I'm in Boston. And I don't know. I just I just felt that spark or that connection that we were seeing things in a similar way. I ended up working at Fidelity, uh, getting a job there, and ended up being uh, working for him. And during that time was sort of, I remember we would just have Every week we would have lunch, uh, lunch one day a week together and just start to talk about different ideas. It was just like we were riffing off each other. Like, what about this? And what about this? And we both were like interested in questions and the, the way to answer questions. The answers, the, those kind of didn't matter so much. It was really like, well, what about this? Or what about this? How would you do that? And it was just such a lovely time. And and as we were sort of starting to get to know each other and I'm sort of doing my day job of a lot of usability testing and and we would sort of carve out time in, in our calendars to run little research studies together. And that was such a great time. We were both learning a lot and and you know, I, I was aware of his his background and he had done a lot more than me in this field, especially in HCI human factors. But we really connected on it. And then um, in early 2000s, there was an interesting moment where he had decided to bring in a group of kind of usability experts into Fidelity to talk about measurement. And we had like this one day meeting and we had like 20 people in a room from different different companies. And everyone was sort of saying, oh, I measure things this way or that way or you know, the only thing that was sort of in common was sus, right? But everything else was kind of this homegrown methods. And from that, I was kind of thinking, oh, that's so interesting that there isn't any standard. And sometime later, I, I came, I remember this very clearly is, you know, sometimes those ideas come to you at really odd moments. I was, um, I just come back from grocery shopping and I was ready to take up some groceries to my home. And I thought, Tom and I should write a book about this and I thought and then my and I just it just it just the vision occurred to me and then I thought you know what let me go put put the frozen foods away and the stuff in the fridge and I run over to my computer I go into Amazon thinking I don't think that there's a book about this and that was confirmed there wasn't a book and I think maybe the next day or two days later I sort of had the courage to go to Tom and say hey Tom I had this crazy idea. Would you want to write a book together on, on on metrics? And without hesitation, without hesitation, he goes, yeah, sure. Sounds good. And I'm like, wait, hold on. Like, this is like a big commitment. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But I, I think it would be great. And kind of, you know, we, we sort of took it from there. And, and it became really a labor of love for for, for many years. Um, we published the first edition in... 2006 or eight. And then we, we did this other book called, you mentioned the Beyond the Usability Lab with Donna Tedesco, as well as Tom. And then we came back to a second. And then the third edition um, that just came out in March, um, very sadly, Tom passed away from, from COVID um, very early on in, in the pandemic. And it was about, about two thirds the way through that third edition. I sort of t- took it the the rest of the way, but it was it was it was really um, emotional. We we really had had bonded as 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 friends over over many years, having taught many classes together and traveled together and co presented, and and we were very much joined at the hip um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, he sounds like a really special person, and clearly someone who together you were able to sharpen each other. I was curious to get your, as someone who knew Tom so well, I was curious to get your thoughts on if Tom was joining us in this conversation and he was here right now, and given what you know of Tom and his body of work, what would he want to say to the the UX leaders that are listening to today's conversation? 
Hmm. That's a good question. I, I think that there was a couple of things that were really driving forces in him. One is he, he deeply cared about mentorship. He really, really cared about helping the next generation. And he would want to encourage people that are established in the field to help the young professionals, people who are trying to get in, whether they're undergraduates or they're just just starting a career, is to do what you can to to mentor. And and he he was a true teacher. And the second thing I think he he really cared about advancing the field and would encourage people to ask questions that they can try to answer, especially experimentally. Um, he was always tinkering with things, physical things. Like he would go to these, the MIT flea market and buy old pieces of technology and, and tinker with things. And he loved experimentation. And he would say things like, I wonder if there's a difference between okay versus submit in terms of people clicking on it or things about the size of the button. Or he was always just like these small little kind of experimental questions that he always wanted to answer. And so I think he would encourage people to set up quick little experiments to answer questions and then to share that um, with the broader community just to help help kind of raise, raise the field. Bill, I believe his Tom's daughter, um, and I'm not sure if you were involved as well, I believe that there's a, a scholarship or a memorial fund that's available through Bentley for mm-hmm. people in, in UX. Is, is there any info you could share yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah. So a little while after Tom's passing, when I was working at Bentley University, we went to Fidelity, where he worked for, I think, 27 years. And we said, would you like to help start or seed um, a scholarship for people who are, who are um, um, new to the field, who are starting graduate school in his name? And Fidelity was very generous, and they offered um, a nice, sizable um, donation, and then we got additional donations on top of that to have even more funds available. And the first recipient, I believe, was just named the last couple months for the class of 2022, and that's a scholarship that will go on in perpetuity um, in Tom's name through through the Bentley UX program. So I'm really touched by that. So happy because that was so near and dear to his heart. I know when we. Uh, Bill Gribbins, who's the the chair of the graduate program, was instrumental in setting that up. And um, when when Bill and I went to Cheryl and his his wife and his other daughter Virginia, and told them that we'd set up this scholarship, they were just in tears. It was a really lovely moment because um, it's something he would have really been touched by. It seems like a incredibly um, fitting way to remember Tom, given what you've just told me about who he was and what he believed in. Now, I want to turn our attention to to your your career now, and I want to wind back the clock a little. You know, we've talked about the early 2000s. I want to go back even a a little bit Mm -hmm. further than that to when you walked out of your education and, you know, completed your PhD. And I know you did a postdoc, but not that long after you walked into what what would have been the most exciting time, I imagine, uh, for the World Wide Web, which was the time that immediately preceded and also ran through the dot-com bubble bursting. And you, you started at Lycos, as far as I remember. And at the time, so for people that don't know, that are younger than I am, Lycos was a competitor to Google. It was a search engine slash directory. You could probably shine a bit more of a light there, Bill. And that was the years you were there between 1999 and 2002, and you were a senior user interface researcher. What was it like? You know, if you if you cast your mind back to that time, you know, walking through the doors at Lycos for the first time, for example, and then that those years afterwards, what was it like being there during that time of the bubble and its subsequent bursting? So, yeah, it, it, it was certainly an interesting time, no doubt. So given that context, so I had I had finished my PhD and then I had done a postdoc looking at um, navigation systems in cars. And that was really interesting. It was kind of my first going from research in, in an area called spatial cognition into kind of human factors and driving 
And people were talking about navigation and information spaces as being kind of this way to look at the World Wide Web, right? And that was in 99. And a friend of mine had gotten a job with Lycos, which is a portal. It was basically like Yahoo. And I joined in April 1999. And that month, they had overtaken Yahoo in page views. And there was all this hoopla. It was like one of the hottest, biggest web properties. They were buying up all these different companies, left, right, and center, basically just trying to buy more and more page views. And I didn't know anything about usability per se. My wife was kind of like, are you sure you know how to do this job? Like, do you even know about this? I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll, figure, I'll figure it, it out. out. I'll, you know, <laughs> I can, I can BS for a little while, but the methodology was very familiar to me. So my first impression was the people I was with were really smart. There was some great people there, many of whom had gone on to Google soon after. And the second thing that made an impression on me was we were doing was we were basically just running a lot of usability tests of different products and finding that they were crap. It's just, they just didn't make sense, you know, and granted expectations were a lot lower then, but still we were like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I was surprised that this whole company was sort of built on this idea of delivering a great user experience. At least that's what they were saying. And we weren't seeing the same in our data in the lab. And I was like, how long can this go on for? I mean, you know, eventually people's expectations start to, to rise. And, you know, can you, can you deliver on a better product, a better experience? And we were sort of convinced, at least internally in our group, that it's like, no, this is not not good. <laughs> but th those were probably the two immediate impressions. Mm. And how did you and your group, if you recall, I know there's been a bit of water under the bridge since, but how do you re recall thinking about Google at the time? Like, what was the view? What was the thought about Google? Yeah. So we weren't worried about Google. We were focused on Yahoo. Mm. When Google came, I remember we did a competitive study and we were interested in only the quality of the search results, nothing about the branding. So we would basically do these studies where we kind of um, almost like white labeled it and would just say, okay, you're searching for, you know, a trip to Florida, right? And here are three set of results. And we knew there was Lycos, Yahoo, and Google to see, you know, just on, on the search results alone, are they better? And I, I believe we found that they were, but it was a long time ago. It was more than 20 years ago. But the thing that struck us was that Google, it, it, for any of you who remember the, those portal pages, those portals, it was like everything in the kitchen sink on a single page. And you just scrolled. It was just like. The, the information density was so high. It was so hard. And here, like, who are these people to have basically a search box and a link or two? And we used to, I don't know if it was because of that or not. We used to have a saying, dare to be simple. Like, basically have the courage just to give what people want and no more, right? Instead, we're trying to interest them in fly fishing and in recipes and all this stuff that people were not asking for right and so th i think that was one of those things that kind of made an impression on us that you know how can you get away with that <laughs> because it wasn't the world we were living in yeah there's what you say and then there's what you do and it almost seems i i, I know we're sort of reflecting on the history of the web here a little but it seems at least that while it wasn't 100% central to its business strategy ux seemed to be much closer or much more strategically deployed by Google than it was by any of those other portals, you know, the AltaVistas, the Lycos, the Yahoos of the yeah. world. It's like they, yeah. they got it. And I don't know, wait, there's probably people that have written books on this, but they, they seem to have demonstrated it pretty effectively, haven't they, over the past 20, 25 years or so. I would love yeah, to come sure. brief, briefly um, to your time post-Bentley because you spent 14 years at Bentley. Clearly, that was a, a place from the outside looking in that was quite dear to you as the executive director of the UX Center there, but also as an adjunct professor. And now you're heading up this new role at Mark 49 as mm. the global head of UX and customer development. I don't imagine it was an easy decision 
after 14 years or thereabouts to leave Bentley? It was definitely not. It was not for, for really a, a couple of reasons. One is that I was enjoying Bentley and I really cared deeply about the institution and specifically our center and especially about the graduate students that we were working with. And and so it it was it was difficult, but I felt like I needed to push myself a little bit more. Not to say I was comfortable with things, but I was at, at Bentley, like most people in UX, are working at kind of along a continuum, usually focused on products that are either have already been designed, they've been developed, they're sort of in some process of being designed or the idea has already been kind of formed and we're trying to optimize it. And that is incredibly important. But what Mach 49 does is they work with large companies who need to develop new ventures, new businesses. And what are those businesses based on new products, new services? So where is the customer pain and how do we design a business to remedy that pain. It was a way for me just to get so far upstream that instead of saying, wait, how did this product get to us? Right. <laughs> Does this product even make sense? Yeah. I could now work and help to find not just the product, but the business. And, and that just seems so appealing to me and so exciting. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm, I'm ready. And, and the way I did it was I, I'm kind of a, a fairly, maybe a cautious, a little bit of a cautious person. So before sort of jumping in full stop, I worked over the fall with Mach 49 in, as a faculty advisor, just to kind of get a sense of the people, their process. And then there was a point in time when, you know, they approached me and, and, and I said, listen, I'm loving it. I would love to join. They said, we'd love to have you. And then, you know, we, we made it kind of permanent um, full time. So um, I sort of t took it kind of slow to make sure it was it was the right move, especially at this point in my career. I wanted to make sure that whatever next chapter there was, it was not going to be a mistake. And, and I'm, I'm just absolutely thrilled with how things are. So. What have been the pleasant surprises? And what, what are the things that you, you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, man, this is such a great place to go to work. You know, what are, what are the challenges that you're really looking forward to? Mm. I think that the, the exciting thing for me is is to think about how we can deliver value to these new ventures, how we can use leverage our user research methods to get to the right decisions and to help ideate and to help create new products. Because most of our methodology is around like, we always are defaulting towards like usability testing and, and that's important, but there's nothing to usability test at this point. We don't have a, we don't have a product, but how, how do we understand pain points or the severity of those pain points? And I'm always sort of just like Tom is like tinkering with different things. I'm always thinking about different uh, metrics. What are some interesting metrics right now? For example, I'm, I'm playing around with using different versions of a, a constant sum, right? So if you say to somebody, you know, you've got $100 to spend to solve this pain or these pains, how would you distribute that money, right? Or those points or whatever you want to call it, right? So we can sort of get a more nuanced view of, of customer pain so we can measure the severity of them, right? And, and what would happen if you start to fold in other pains that you're experiencing as part of your business? So how do those pains kind of compete with a much broader sense of kind of what what's going on um, in your context, in your world? So stuff like that really, really excites me to help kind of set the strategic direction for, for the team um, to be able to work with incredibly smart, ambitious um, focused people who are really supportive of one another. So I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but it really is true. I have just been super impressed. Um, and I love working with kind of global challenges. You know, how do we, for example, talk to farmers in Indonesia or 
convenience store managers who want to set up EV charging stations. Like it just goes on and on. Things like that. I, I, I get really jazzed about of complex, interesting research challenges. I was going to say, it sounds like uh, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory equivalent for, for UX yeah. research. Thinking about, you, you, you talked about the difference between evaluating an existing experience and trying to better understand customer pain points and problems. I was curious to know whether or not uh, you've been using something like this, something like jobs to be done or jobs to be done to try and get a dispassionate perspective on what those things are and, and, and quantify and prioritize them. Um, yeah, we've done some work around jobs to be done for sure. And it, it depends on the project and, and the team. I'm trying to push my team, not surprisingly, to take that mixed methods approach to understand, you know, the what and the why through qualitative and the how much, the magnitude of the problem through quantitative. And I think that's really where, where we're at is, is, is bringing those two kind of uh, perspectives together right now at that point but yeah quantifying the experience and and using mixed methods you know we've talked about this a number of times so far now it's clearly a big part of your life's work has been helping people to do that and it's i suppose it's brought you brought you joy but it seems to have also brought you a little bit of frustration and i'll just quote i'll quote you now you've said you can't go on anecdotal evidence which you mentioned earlier you just can't go on a hunch it really, it's really, really risky to do that. This is probably the area that companies that we work with while you're at Bentley is the single biggest mistake that they make. They come to us too late. Now, there will be many other people listening to this episode who will have, if they're not at the moment, will have previously found themselves in a similar position, being frustrated that they feel like they're the ambulance or the UX is the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, you know, or there's some other uh, analogies that are, uh, are less complementary to this type yeah. of approach. Why do we find ourselves in this position more often than not? Because it's really easy to wait to the end. There's no one telling you. You can, you've got great ideas and you feel like you know the problems, you know the customer. Um, and let's just start building it. Come on, grab some, grab a hammer and some nails and let's go out and start building the house. You know, hey, did you realize that the bathroom is not connected to any room? Or that, you know, like, it, it, it's it's just such a, it's just, people get excited. I mean, I, I'm just thinking, um, you know, we've probably all, anyone who's done any kind of home improvement projects, you know, if, if we're doing a painting job, we know that almost all the work is in the prep. The actual painting is, is, is kind of only at the very end, that's sort of the easy fun part. But when you put the paint on, it looks great, right? And we can just start painting over old wallpaper right? It's just easy and it looks good and we get that satisfaction right away. But you gotta lay that foundation and with UX is understand. And like, so for example, benchmarking, sometimes companies will say like, why should we evaluate something we know is going to change? Well, because maybe you want to know whether you're actually making it better or not. I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to think of that. That's, you know, it, it's just, it's so counterintuitive. Yeah, it is counterintuitive, but it, I also wonder whether we're fighting a little bit against human nature here. You know, you talked about the, the rush and the excitement to just get building, you know, I've got this great idea, let's just do this. Sometimes when you run an evaluation, probably actually more often than not in my experience, it's not overly or not 100% flattering of what is actually being created. So I, I sometimes wonder, like, how much of this is actually willful ignorance? Mm, certainly could be. I think a lot, a lot of people outside of UX, they, they know it, they understand it, they appreciate it. But when it comes down to it, are they going to give you the budget you need? Are they going to make a little room in their project timeline for you? Maybe, maybe not, right? It, it's it, there's a lot of lip service going on. You know, one of one thing that I really believe is that you add 
steps to save time with what we do. So, you know, if, if Brendan, if you come to Boston, it's a really confusing city to drive around. And if you come from the airport to my house, you're probably going to get lost. And you could keep driving around, driving around. You'll eventually get to my house, right? But you could stop, ask somebody directions, or at least in the old days, and they could point you in the right direction. And you're going to save a lot of time. And, and it's, it, that is the way with, with, with UX, right? We need to understand the users, the context, the problems to get to a better place, a better product, better experience faster. And people don't get that, or at least they don't fully up appreciate that they see it as kind of this this add-on this extra thing that we need to do or it's coming from high up and so it's kind of a, a box to tick you've run into this more than once by the sound of it you know you've got 20 plus years of experience yeah. in the field what one thing or one area of pressure or one point of leverage can practitioners or UX leaders that feel like they're fighting an uphill battle here, fighting for that room in that house mm -hmm. or in that palace that people are building just to do maybe some basic evaluation of what's actually going on sooner rather than later. What can yeah. they do? Where should they focus their efforts? I mean, I think for, for many practitioners, it comes down to money and budget and one argument that I've made, whether it's successful or not, I'm not sure, but is to say, like, listen, kind of how much for for product owners or stakeholders, how much is it worth knowing that we're going to deliver the best product, the best experience? How much of the budget would you be willing to set aside to make sure that you really have the thing that you are intending to build or to, to create? 1%, a half of 1%, just give me a half of 1% and we can we can guarantee that, right? You know, conversely, what is the cost of getting it wrong? What's the price of failure? Extremely high, extremely high. Years and years ago at Fidelity, we had designed um, and built a product that ended up not testing well and it got kind of, word kind of got around and it was ready to launch. And they stopped the launch and basically had to go into a redesign. It was like a million dollars. It was expensive. I was like, wow. That was a real eye-opener for me. And hats off to them because they were like, why would we knowingly launch something worse? You know, we're all intelligent people. Like just, you know, it's sort of that sunk cost fallacy, you know, you have to kind of kind of get away from it's hard, you know, but um, there are companies like that, and and sometimes they just don't want to know. It's it's looking at the how are other people incentivized? Is it around creating a great product and and demonstrating that, or is it around making sure you get it done by the end of June? Yeah, fundamental difference, isn't it? And you talked about sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, sure. It is such a powerful influence on behavior. And it would be really easy, I suppose, and this happens quite a lot in UX circles, for us to look at the rest of the organization and go, oh, what are they doing? They don't get us. They can't see our value. You know, they just need to take a step back and do some of this work. But how much of the responsibility and perhaps the blame for poor performance or for the situation that we find ourselves in, and I know that we're going to be generalizing here, but how much of this falls at the feet of UX leaders that haven't invested in understanding and building a quantifiable way of evaluating user experience and communicating whether or not it's better or worse than the current state to leadership? Like, are these UX mm. leaders derelict in their duties to their organizations, to the field, and to users by not doing that? Oh, that's good. I think, I, I, derelict is a very strong word. I think that a lot of UX professionals would probably benefit by having some metrics available in their argument, right? But the same goes for having really effective um, video clips to show people struggling. Right, those are really powerful too. Numbers are powerful. Stories are powerful. Bringing them together is, is even better. So I think it would be another kind of weapon in your toolkit or whatever, something that would really help make that argument. But I think that 
I, I don't, I don't, I don't blame UX people. They're doing whatever they can in sometimes difficult situations, but it's, it's hard, especially for junior folks to be able to push back and demand more budget, more time to have the data that teams need to, to make the right decisions. Is there a, a right way or time to introduce measurement of UX metrics into the design org or into the wider organization if they haven't really been part of the picture? The One of the very first quant studies I did way back in infidelity with, with Tom Tullis is what we did was we said, okay, we're, we're lining every year. We're kind of lining up projects, right? What do we want to work on kind of our roadmap for the next 12 months or 18 months? And we said, okay, why don't we do this? Let's do a competitive study of fidelity versus two competitors. Let's agree on these are like the 20 tasks that are most common and let's get some data on that to see where do we do well and where do we fall short and against who and why, why do they beat us? And then let's use that as kind of one of the drivers in coming up with our new kind of slate of, of projects, right? And people are like, yeah, we can set aside some budget. That seems like a smart idea, right? Like who doesn't want to be able to know kind of who's doing what and why are they doing better than us on these key tasks or what do we have we could actually promote when people are doing well on ours. So it was kind of an easy sell. We could sort of do it off on the side. No one was demanding it. And once we started that, we did that kind of annual benchmarking. Then we could sort of, people started seeing the value of the metrics and saying like, hey, could you actually collect more data in kind of your, your normal day-to-day other project work that we're doing? And started to also bring in other data sources. So voice of customer, our analytics, stuff from marketing. And what we started looking at was basically doing a big triangulation exercise. We have this data source and it's telling us this story. This data source is telling us, you know, and we could start to see all these commonalities. You know what? It's highly, highly doubtful that this problem is that we're seeing it in four different data sources, right? Where it doesn't exist. I feel very confident, you know, if something is only, if we kind of infer a problem or see a problem in only one data source, then we might want to learn more, try to validate it. But when we see it across multiple data sources, especially three or more, then we feel really confident. So that was kind of another way of kind of trying to see the big picture in in a more quantifiable way. You're talking about the integrating insight and data that is across the organization, across different departments outside of the one that you were working in and bringing it together to try and get a more complete picture or at least to identify areas of potential problems that needed further investigation. You know, you made that sound really easy. But I suspect it wasn't. What was the approach? You know, was this a command and control type, we have a mandate to make this happen type thing? Or was it soft power that you use? Like, how did you actually make this happen? Oh, this was, well, first off, that was way back when. (laughs) So, and the other power we had were were interns who could do really a lot of grunt work. Um, So... We would, you know, we literally would take a sample of a few thousand transcriptions from like, let's say, um, phone calls coming in and just categorize them, right? These are all the issues that we're hearing around password resets or around navigation or some other, whatever. But yeah, it's, 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 it can be a lot of work. I don't know. It depends on the organization, the data that they have, but at least in theory, you should want to be able to bring multiple data sources in to see a more picture and complete picture. And and the real the reason is ultimately it is about confidence. Like in measurement, it's about the confidence in making conclusions, right? What are the what what is the chance that I'm gonna be wrong? If I tell you that this thing is crap, I might be wrong. It might be good. Right. Or the other problem is I tell you it's fine when it's really crap. Right. So th- those are kind of the two mistakes as a researcher that we can make. Misses and false alarms, errors of omission, commission. They go by different terms, but it's the same idea. And 
what I'm trying to do is have as high a degree of confidence in what I'm saying and what I report out as possible so stakeholders can make informed decisions. If I go in with, we did this one study with a small sample size and we have this metric and I look at the stats of it and I can say, well, it was really good or really bad or somewhere in between. That's not going to help anybody. In fact, it makes me look a little silly. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really about having confidence through the data in making the right decision. Well, let's talk about confidence. So let's talk about sample sizes. And, and this is potentially not surprising, this, this next question, but I feel that given your depth of knowledge in quantifying the user experience, that you will be able to hopefully through your own skills, but perhaps channeling Tom as well, make this complex concept, which actually seems really simple to be honest, but really clear for people that are listening. And one of one of the myths that exists out there, particularly as it pertains to usability testing, is this myth of the, the five participants uh, are enough to find 80% as is you know, always talked about, of the problems in a given experience. But that's not actually what Jacob Nielsen was talking about in his, in his paper there, was it? He wasn't advocating for that. What is the actual math? And when we talk about confidence, how does confidence relate to this myth of the five, of the five users? So the math is actually really straightforward. It's 1 minus 1 minus P to the N, okay? And what that is basically is P, it goes to this idea of problem, the probability of problem detection. Usability testing is different than other things of, of measuring, like measuring somebody's preferences or something like that with a question. It's, it's problem detection. And what is the probability that any one person through one person, we would detect that problem. And in that paper, they talked about a p-value, which is different than the statistical p-value, but that p-value of probability of problem detection of 0.3. So if a problem exists, and I'm going to run 10 people through a usability test, on average, three people are, are going to have that problem. I'll be able to observe it, right? Now, that n is the sample size. So a, pr a probability of 0.3 with five or six people gets us to that 80% that we can detect 80% of the problems with only five people. Is that 80% okay, so of the problems that only one in three people will experience? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's with five people, we have an 80% chance of seeing it. Okay, and, and that's that's sort of, sort of the math behind it but here here's the here's the rub is that some of the some of the products we test um sometimes the products are really the problems are really obvious right almost everybody trips over them and we can see them right and there we might only need three people to have any kind of you know because everybody's having the problem other products imagine if if amazon came to you and said we want to do a usability test of our entire website, and we want you to find all the usability problems. You, you know, it's it's exactly you, you'd laugh, right? Because the probability of problem detection is so incredibly small, right? Versus some kind of maybe a low fidelity prototype or something like that, or where it's going to be much much higher. So determining sample size is really important, and part part of it deals with kind of the the fidelity of the thing that you're testing and, and a whole host of other issues. Now, the reality though is, and I've, I've seen this happen literally a million times, I think, is that when we go into usability testing and if we test five or six people in day one and five or six in day two, people don't co come for day two, or at least they're less likely to. And the reason is because they, they feel it's kind of a repeat of day one, right? That's sort of the, the proof there that day two is not providing that much additional value because that probability of problem detection is usually high where they're not learning anything new on, on the second day after the sixth or seventh person. And it's more just like getting especially the, the designer, the product person, like you're getting punched in the face over and over and over again. It's hard to take. <laughs> so, 
it can be pretty gnarly, can't it? Yeah. 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 You're raising a really good point about when you split testing over multiple days and uh, or or when you have people that only attend one session is it's very easy for them to draw conclusions off the basis of an incomplete experience themselves of the testing. And there's what I've found at least is there's there's always, I, I don't know what the percentage would be, but when I go back and rewatch sessions that I've been moderating, I always draw out or find more subtle problems than I do in the room or then when I'm observing live. And I was talking to Dr. Natalie Hansen, who's at ZS Associates a few months ago, about the the ladder of inference, I believe, is what came up. And the importance of if you are going to have people attending these sessions is it's not just enough, and I'll be interested in your perspective too, Bill, on this. It's not just enough to have them watch. It's actually, you know, that time with the pizza afterwards where you start to integrate and talk about and and share openly, well, what was it that we actually saw and try and get some alignment or at least clarify any sort of yeah. dark corners of that before you leave and go off back to your day jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I've, I've sort of evolved on this. I think back in the day, a long time ago, we were just happy for people to watch and so there's this whole thing of mm-hmm. like, <laughs> should we have the pizza? Or what about maybe they would like sandwiches instead? And let's make sure we that have dessert. That was a Steve Krug reference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, is, you know, what can we do to entice them so they can actually see this product in action, right? So whether they were answering emails and catching bits of it, it, it was kind of like that was enough maybe. But I think as it's become more and more central, more and more critical to success, or at least people being more open to that and seeing that, that having them actively engaged in taking notes, debriefing, being responsible for something as it relates to each session will really help, will make a big difference in its, you know, we're on, you know, our phones are, are too... It's hard to compete against a phone, right? But anything we can do to kind of start start to change that balance and just say like, okay, for the next hour, like you are going to get so much out of this, right? But you need to put in some some focus, right? In fact, a, a number of years ago, a, a former student, Josh Rosenberg, and I developed a, a, a metric that we, we presented at a UXPA conference called, I think we called it TEM, the team engagement model. And it was basically a, a metric that measures how engaged teams are in watching usability tests. And we just came up with all these different kind of data points that people could kind of use to kind of track over time if you're engaging your team. But it was kind of that that same idea of not only how can we, but can we measure that? Um, so it's kind of a, a did you look little. at did you look at the role of coffee in increasing the <laughs> engagement? I don't know, I don't know, but um, that that <laughs> coffee is always important. From what I could gather, most of your studies had have been large scale or as of late, and and again, I don't have the complete picture here. So if I'm putting words in your mouth, let me know. But most of your studies. At, your, at the tail end of your uh, time at Bentley were large-scale, unmoderated, usability-focused, but with a broader lens into other aspects of the UX, but but those large-scale, unmoderated studies. And I've heard you say, and I'll quote you again now, in the work we do, we aim for a margin of error of plus or minus 4%. What does, what does that specifically relate to, that margin of error? You know, I assumed, as I've said, I assumed this was unmoderated usability testing. And why such large samples? Like I think you've talked about in the past three to 400 people on occasion have been participating in these studies. Yeah, so I think what that is referring to, so the large scales, again, it goes back to this idea of confidence in making decisions and being able to, like, for example, tease apart more nuanced things. So if, if I'm asking somebody about, you know, do you like the blue button or the red button? I mean, I'm I'm notoriously wrong at kind of trying to choose that. I need a lot of data to know if there's if there's a difference. So that's usually there's 
there's something that happens with a sample size of around 400, 500 people, it starts being diminishing returns, right? And and if we have a, a margin of error of plus or minus 4%, I could add another 500 people and then get down to maybe 3%, something like that. So it's just, it's just not worth it. But one of the biggest uh, sort of mistakes that UX researchers make is that they they ask kind of preference-based questions of small sample sizes. And it, it's very easy to do. You know, you've got 10 people and you ask about color or you ask about, you know, does this image resonate with you? Yes. And you know, like a, a million different relevant questions. But when you, it's just, you, there's no statistical power there to make any kind of reliable, right? And, and it goes back to this idea of like, you know, usability is really good at detecting problems, and we can do that reliably with small sample sizes, but we can't do it with anything preference-based. And that's why the, the larger sample sizes are needed to make the right decision. So when I heard you talk about preference, and I'm not sure exactly what talk it was that I was watching, but it really struck me, and in a good way, actually, it really sort of challenged challenged my thinking about what it is we're here to do in UX research. And I'll quote you again. You said, measuring preferences is very, very important. And when I heard that, it sounded to me at least more like something a market researcher would say. And I thought in the business of UX research, we were more about measuring behavior. But preferences are, are, are driving my experience, right? I mean, I'm looking, I'm trying to look at the totality of the experience and what's driving that. And there isn't a color palette. There's no right or wrong, inherent right or wrong to that, right? And, but it's, it's affecting my experience and I want to be able to create the best experience I can. So I need to be able to look at, look at it. Um, more recently, I've been really trying to um, develop like a scorecard around measuring emotion an emotional experience, right? And it's not just about behavior, but the emotions people are feeling through an experience and looking at it from, from kind of different lenses. So I, I just... Using like galvanized skin response and looking at pupils and well, seeing what's going on. Not, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But I, honestly, I think the, 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 the galvanic skin response or GSR, it's not very useful for, for most practitioners. We can't measure something called valence with that, which is like the positive or negative aspect of emotion. I just know that you're aroused, but I don't know if it's good or bad. So it's really a lot of it comes down for most of us comes down to usually self-report, asking people different questions and some potentially facial recognition software to look at things like smiles. But even that's complicated. But I, 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 that's in terms of measuring experience, the emotional piece is definitely the hardest nut to crack. Behavioral piece, I think we we know how to measure success and time and errors and all these things that are tied to our emotion, but the the uh, to our behavior, but the emotional piece is is much tougher. What I'm about to ask you for my final question might seem a little strange. You see, I had a look at the book dedication for your latest book, Measuring the User Experience, and it was to your mother, Sarah Albert. I'm very, personally, I'm very close to my mother. So I'm curious, what was it that Sarah gave you that you wanted to acknowledge her in that way? Oh, that's a really uh, very thoughtful question. Well, I mean, she's she's beyond being my mother and someone who I love very dearly. She's She's a really unique person. And as it relates to our conversation, she has no intuition regarding anything technological. She has said on many occasions, I was born in the wrong century. Um, <laughs> she's had many famous quotes in her family. One is, the sound on my internet doesn't work. Um, she refused <laughs> to have speakers next to her computer because they didn't look good. She's an artist, and it's all about the look. And speakers didn't look good, so she could never get sound. I am literally a, a tech support twenty four seven for her. <laughs> Me and, too. <laughs> and you know, I think 
what I do, at least tangentially, is kind of related or informed by her and trying to make design products are simple, that require a minimum amount of intuition, and that are accessible, especially for older adults and other people with disabilities. It is so hugely important. And and to design those design products that meet everybody's needs and they can use them. I've seen on many occasions, just as one real example for this is, for example, for people on oxygen, the mechanics of, of turning these knobs is very difficult. And if you've got arthritis, you simply can't. I don't know why there isn't something. Maybe there is, does exist, but I just haven't seen it. You know, um, there's so much opportunity to make people's lives better, directly, just really benefit people through through better design and design informed by research. So I think that sort of is a, a big inspiration for me. Oh, what a great place to leave our conversation. Bill, thank you for such a interesting and wide-ranging and conversation at depth today. I've really appreciated you taking the time to share your stories and insights with me. It was great. It's always it's always fun to talk about yourself. So thanks for that opportunity. <laughs> oh, you're most welcome, Bill. If people want to find out more about you and your work at Mark 49 and all the other things that you've been doing, what's the best way for them to do that? It's really a, b- a bunch of different places. Um, look for me on LinkedIn, uh, mock49.com to see what our, our company's up to. Please check out the Journal of User Experience, uxpajournal.org. Check out the Bentley UX Center as well, bentley.edu slash uxc. And finally, I guess Twitter would be uxmetrics for me. Great. Thanks, Bill. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered, including where you can find Bill and all the organizations he's associated with, will be in the show notes. Um, And also, there'll be full chapters of our conversation on the YouTube show notes. So check those out as well if you want to hop to specific parts of the conversation today. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review view. Those are really helpful. Subscribe to the podcast so it arrives weekly in your in your podcast app. And also tell someone else if you feel that there's someone you know that would benefit from these conversations about design and product at depth, then share it with them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, just Brendan Jarvis. Go and, go and find me there. Or there's a link to my LinkedIn profile at the bottom of the show notes as well. Or you can visit me at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave.